the series that we look at through Psalm 139 as a series that is going to teach us about who God is. And David is writing this chapter to, uh, to tell us about the depths of who God is and to reveal to us um, what we can know about God. And there's, there's two terms. When we think about what we can know about God, there's two terms. There are um, about his attributes or about his personalities. One are his communicable attributes and the other are his incommunicable attributes. His communicable attributes and his incommunicable attributes. And, and I'll be honest with you that outside of going to seminary, I had no idea what those were, why they mattered. Um, and still some days I'm like, oh, I just don't really recite God's communicable attributes because it's, it's just not layman's terms, but it's critical for us to understand if we're going to know who God is that we know about God and his attributes are the characteristics of his being that tell us who he is. The communicable attributes are those attributes um, that talk about God's character and these are the things that we can receive from God and we can reflect of God. So these two terms communicable and incommunicable. The communicable attributes are the characteristics of God that we can receive and we can reflect. Now, if you take notes, um, on the back of your bulletin, there's a, a section that says sermon notes. The words that are underlined correspond with the blanks in your sermon uh, outline. And just so we know, I already got in trouble last week. We started putting the sermon outline in there so that you could keep up. And I already had some children get mad at me because that's supposed to be their drawing space. You can still draw there, but you can also take notes. Communicable attributes are the characteristics of God that we can receive and we can reflect, like God's love. We can receive God's love through placing our faith in Jesus Christ, and then we can share, we can express, we can reflect God's love by loving other people. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind is a way that we can reflect God's love by loving Him back or by showing our love of other people. Another characteristic is mercy. God is merciful to us, which means that He doesn't give us what we deserve, and we can express and show mercy mercy towards other people by not giving them what they deserve, but by uh, choosing to forgive them or choosing to love them. Uh, Love and mercy, his goodness. We can receive God's goodness because he's a good God uh, and we can be good in life. God's incommunicable attributes, on the other hand, are the characteristics of God that we cannot receive and we cannot reflect We cannot receive those and we cannot reflect those. In in other words, there are certain attributes and characteristics of God that are unique to him. It doesn't matter how good or bad we are, we just simply can't receive them because we are created finite beings. We have limitations. The series that we're going to teach through in Psalm chapter 139 is going to look at some of the incommunicable attributes of God. And InterVarsity Christian Fellowship provides um, what I believe to be a, a really fantastic list of God's incommunicable attributes. Now, depending on what scholars you read or what articles you read, different people will define or describe or identify different characteristics. But I believe for our purposes that InterVarsity Christian Fellowship provides a very good List And I want to share with you God's incommunicable attributes from that particular source. Now, as we jump into this, I, we need to know just kind of a, a side point here that there's a difference between teaching and preaching. 
all right? I need to, in an effort to deliver the content of this message, I need to teach you what God's Word says so that we can then preach what God's Word says. What's the difference? Teaching is to instruct the mind. Preaching is to inspire the heart. So we're teaching to instruct the minds about the depth of God, teaching you who God is, what God is, according to His revelation, And we will eventually get to the preaching where we inspire people to receive that truth and to live out that truth. But we can't get to the preaching until we do the teaching. And we got to do the teaching to get to the preaching. So if you're in here and you love the teaching parts of it, good. You're going to love the first part. If you're in here and you don't like the teaching part, but you really love the preaching part of the sermon, good. We're going to get to it. If you're in here and you don't like the teaching or the preaching, that's your own fault. All right? I mean, you came to church. We've got to do one or the other. We're going to do both. So let me do some teaching. We're going to teach you through these, uh, just briefly highlight points about each of these incommunicable attributes. And then I need to teach you uh, Psalm 139, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4, so that I can preach what God's Word says in verses 5 and 6. Does that sound like a plan? Great. Those are the only notes I brought. Here are God's incommunicable attributes. Number one, These are in no particular order, but God is sovereign, okay? God's sovereignty is a characteristic about who God is, and it's unique to Him. We cannot receive sovereignty, nor can we reflect sovereignty. What God's sovereignty means is that God is the supreme being. Everything that exists is under God's rule and His authority. He is above all, okay? That's what God's sovereignty means. He is above all. His omnipotence means that he's all-powerful. God is not only all-powerful, but he is the most powerful being in all existence. And because he's all-powerful, he is able to accomplish his will, though he's unwilling to do anything that contradicts or is contrary to his nature. So God can do all things. He's powerful enough to do all things, but he's not going to do anything that would prevent him or prevent nature from maintaining its pace. So there's always that question about God. What is God incapable to do? And people will sometimes ask and jest, can God create a rock that's too big for him to pick up? He could, but he won't, because he won't do anything that's outside of nature, or his nature, or contradicts his nature. So could, could God possibly, would God know? His omniscience. His omniscience is that God is all-knowing. God knows everything of the past and of the present and of the future. He knows everything that actually will happen, and he knows everything that possibly or potentially could happen past, present, and future. So God has the sum of all knowledge, everything. He knows whether it actually is or it potentially could happen. God has knowledge of it. His omnipresence. God's omnipresence means that God is present in all places at all times. So God is not in all things. That's called pantheism. That's a heresy that we refute and we refuse. He's not in all things, but he is in all places at all times. So God is here with us at all times. He's not in this podium. He's not in that pew, but he is here with us. Um, This idea that he is always present at all times times and in all places. Uh, It's an idea. There's a seminary professor that in order to make this point, 
um, he would, the day that he taught about God's omnipresence, he would pray at the beginning of class, as was his practice, and he would pray, and during that particular day, he would say something to the effect of, dear Lord, we thank you for being with us here, and God would just ask that you would give us understanding to, to know you in a deeper way, and Lord, we just want to thank you and pray, God, that you would be with the soldiers on the battlefield of the Civil War right now as they fight the battles, and as they miss their families, and his students would, mid-prayer, just start looking up, being like, all right, this dude's lost it right? It's time for retirement. And he would finish the prayer and he would say, if we truly believe that God is in all places at all times, then God is equally as present with us right now as he is equally present with the soldiers on the battlefield in any battle. He is everywhere at all times because he exists outside of our chronology or our time. God's omnipresent. God's transcendent. God's transcends all creation and is unknowable apart from his self-initiated revelation. In other words, he is beyond the range of creation because he is uncreated. God is not a creation within this creation. He is uncreated and he is the creator of all things that exist, which means he transcends them. He's outside of and above all of created order. But we also understand that God is not only transcendent, but he's also imminent. In imminency, what that means is that God is active in this world and in our daily lives. God cares about every aspect of our existence and invites us to welcome his guidance, grace, and love. So even though God transcends all creation, we understand that he is also imminently involved with us. He has the ability to He has the ability to penetrate creation and to be present with us. This is what it means. God's immutability is that God is complete and he's perfect. Therefore, he does not need to mature or grow or learn anything or become a better God because he is full and he's complete. God's infinite means that God is infinite. He is unlimited. Our believing that God is infinite gives us faith that our lives have a larger purpose than our limited years on earth. God is infinite. He is unlimited in every way. And God is eternal. God's eternality means that he is not confined to three-dimensional space or time, but God never has a beginning and he will never have an end. And to believe that God is eternal is to also believe that we have eternal hope. These are God's incommunicable attributes, which means these are the attributes and characteristics of God that we cannot receive and we can't reflect. Despite what your mama may think about you, you are not infinite and perfect. There are things that you can grow in. There are ways that you can be better. Despite what you may think about yourself, you are not all-knowing or all-powerful. Even when you're 18 and think you know everything and can do everything. There are still limitations to you, but God has no limitation. And in Psalm chapter 139, Paul opens up for us the depth of who God is, primarily in these first verses looking at God's omniscience, his all-knowing. And as we go deeper into this passage, what we're going to find is that God doesn't know all things, and that lead us to be uh, retreating from him. But because God knows all things, we can be refreshed through him. And so I want to invite you to look at Psalm chapter 139, verse 1, we learn that God is all-knowing. The psalmist uses here the word to know. As a matter of fact, in these first six verses, the psalmist says know or knowledge four times in six verses. In verse 1, he says, O Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. 
You have searched me and you have known me. This word to search, as Paul describes, or not Paul, but as David describes, as David describes the knowledge of God, he says that he searched, which talks about God's, his ability to penetrate and to examine intimately every aspect of our lives and our knowledge. So God, when he searches us, he is able to penetrate even the parts of our lives that we think we're hiding from other people. Now, we all have our public lives and we have our private lives. We have the things that are publicly known about us and we have the things that we think we're keeping private from other people. But God is not kept from knowing the private points of our life. Rather, God knows even the privatest moments of our life, and he penetrates those most intimate places, and he knows everything. You are not keeping any secret from God. When you think God, uh, when you think that no one else can see or know, God sees and he knows. This word to know, it means to have knowledge or to comprehend. In other words, the Lord is capable of searching you and he has the capacity to know you. And this is what David opens up with. He says, he has searched me and he has known me. He is capable of digging down deep. He is capable of unearthing and uncovering everything that there is about me. And he has the capacity to know all of these things. And let's look at what God knows. What does the Lord know? We see in verses 2, 3, and 4 that the Lord first knows. Remember, we're teaching so that we can get to the preaching. First, we learn that God knows the lows and the highs. God knows the lows and the highs of who we are. In verse 2, David writes, You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. By sitting down, what he's talking about is he's talking about the moments where we can't stand it any longer. Have y'all ever used that phrase? I can't stand it. That's a phrase that speaks of us not being able to bear or tolerate whatever it is that we're facing in the moment. So we just need to take a load off and we just need to sit down. In other words, God knows when you have reached your limit and you need to just sit down. Or when you just need to fail. God knows when you are in the moment of failure. And God knows not only when you're in the moment of failure, but he knows when you're at your heights, when you rise up. The psalmist says, he knows when I rise up. In other words, he knows when I feel motivated, when I stand to my feet and I'm ready to march forward. He knows when I am pressing on and succeeding. He knows when I'm experiencing victory. God knows the lowest points of your failure and he knows even the highest points of your success because God knows everything. But the psalmist tacks on this little phase, phrase at the end of verse 2, and he says, and you discern my thoughts from afar. What he's saying is he's reflecting back on the lows and the highs, and he's saying, and God, you know my lows and my highs, but it's not just any point of failure and any point of success. You know when I'm trying to do things on my own. In other words, when I've set myself afar from you, God, and because I'm trying to distance myself from you, I fail or when I've set myself far from you, I think I'm succeeding. God, you know those moments. Why, why do we do this? Why do we put distance between ourselves and God? And why are we ever surprised when we fail and flounder in terrible moments when we've put God at an arm's length away? God says, I know when you fail because you're far from me. And he says, I also know when you think you're succeeding when you're far from me. 
Sometimes we do. We, we put God to the distance and we say, I can do this myself. And God gives us little taste of victory. And there may be even moments where we taste victory or taste success and we think, I thought I could do this. And God says, I know when you're thinking that. God knows our lows. He knows our highs. He also knows our paths and our places. He knows our paths and our places. What's more is that he knows the pathways that we live every day, and he knows the places where we stop to rest. In verse 3, you search out my path. Now, when he uses this word path, the, the psalmist is saying, these are the well-trodden pathways of life. Your everyday habits, your everyday custom. Do any of you, are any of you habit-ridden people? You, you got your custom, you like your way? When I came here, uh, one of the first people that I had the opportunity to meet was Heather Rudy. Heather is the pastor's assistant here. She's married to Matt. They're a fantastic, incredible couple. And she said, what can I do to help you um, every day in the office? And I said, the, one of the best things you can do is to make sure that nobody messes up my schedule, which is remarkably unrealistic. Um, but some of you are like that. It, it, I, and I am. I, we're nature. We're we're creatures of habit. It's our nature to want consistency, and and I'm like that. I want to get up, and the first thing I want to do is I want to get coffee and not talk to anybody. I don't want to see you before I've had coffee. All right, doesn't mean I don't love you. I just don't want to see you, and then I want to have my quiet time. Like, do not meet me before I've met with the Lord. All right, it's just not good. It's not good for you. It's not good for me. It's not good for anybody. Coffee, meet with the Lord. And then I want to come into the church and I want to pray some more and I want to get into the word and I want to prepare my messages and study and be ready to deliver God's word. And then I can talk to people. Then, just then, and I was like, you know, Heather, if you could just make that happen every day without interruption, that'd be fantastic. And don't judge me, you people. I know you do the same thing. <laughs> some of you, your, your days are hijacked when your routine gets broken the slightest bit. And perhaps, it's been said, the older we get, the worse it gets. And I feel bad for everybody around me because I'm already like, I'm already in my ways. The pathway that the psalmist is talking about, he's talking about your well-trodden, your regular path and pattern of living, your habits, your routines. God knows what you do every single day and how you go about. But he says, not only does the Lord know my path, but he says, the Lord knows my lying down. The lying down specifically talks about, it talks about the moments and it really kind of lays out this picture of someone that's lying face down on the ground. They're laying face down on the ground and they have their hands spread out above them and they have their feet laid out behind them and they're just stretched out on their face, which speaks about being in your most vulnerable state. Like if you're laying on your face and your hands are stretched out and your face is planted on the ground and your feet are out behind you, you are vulnerable to everything and everyone. And the psalmist is saying, God, you not only know the way I live my life every day, but you know the moments when I'm willing to be vulnerable, when I'm willing to lie down and let my guard down. You know Used to be when I got home and I, I took the cover off, I took the mask off, I took the, the facade away and I was just myself. 
And this is kind of an aside, but I think that used to be that's what we did when we got home. But I'm afraid that in this contemporary generation that some of you aren't even willing to be vulnerable with the people you live with every day. That there's really never a place where you just take the mask off and let people in. But I'll tell you that God knows you even in those moments when you are willing to do that. He knows not only the way you live, but he knows the places where you let the guard down. God knows the lows, he knows the highs, he knows the paths, and he knows the places. And he also knows the words. Again, we're talking about God's all-knowing character. Verse 4 Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. This is one of those mind-blowing moments where we realize that God knows, watch this, God knows every word that we will speak before we speak it. He knows every word that we will speak before we speak it. That's not all. He knows why we are going to speak every word that we will speak before we speak it. That's not all. He knows not only why we'll speak, every word we'll speak before we speak it, and what words we'll speak before we speak it, but he knows what will happen as a result of the words we'll speak before we speak it. He knows it all. He knows what we're going to say, why we're going to say it, and what's going to happen as a result of us saying it. He knows it all. All together, the scripture says, all together in verse 4. That means he knows the, the sum of the world of our words and all of the interactions, both the actual and the potential ramifications of every word. And he knows not only all of these things, but he knows them before we'll speak them and he knows them before we were even created. He knew it all. Why? Because God is all knowing. This is one of his characteristics, this is one of his attributes, this is who he is. He knows all things. And that leads us to a place where we have to consider, how does he respond? How does he respond? Now, if you ask me, if I knew everything that God knows, how would I respond to man? I would wipe you out. I don't know everything there is to know about me. I forget things all the time. And just what I know about me, even on my good days, I wouldn't even want me around. And let me say this. I've not had a cross or course interaction with any person in this church or this community yet. (laughs) Still just a few weeks in, there's opportunity. Some of you, I know, you, you never miss an opportunity to disappoint. And you'll get your chance, don't worry. But what I do know about some people in this church and in this community, if I knew all that God knew, but just based on what I know, some of you aren't as great as you think you are. And it's just the truth. So how does God respond? If he knows everything, the lows and the highs, if he knows the paths and the places, if God knows all of the world of the words, how does he respond to that? If we go deeper into understanding who God is, this is what we understand, that God knowing all that he knows, he responds by being graciously present with us. This is where we move from teaching to preaching. 
Grace is receiving what we don't deserve. Grace is receiving what we don't deserve. We don't deserve for God to be personally with us, but God has chosen, even though he knows all that he knows, he has chosen to be present in our life. He's chosen to be present in your life. God's word tells it. He reveals it right here in verse five. He he says, the psalmist says, even though you know all that you know, you hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. In other words, God knows everything and he hems me in. With his presence, he stands behind me and he stands in front of me. Behind me, he's watching my back with his presence. Before me, he's my shield for everything that's coming my way. God's covering us from the enemies and the attacks that would come towards us, and he's covering us from those that would sneak up behind us. God is presently with us, which I find to be miraculous because he knows everything. He knows everything, and yet he's still with us. He's hemming us in with his presence. He's not sending someone else to do it. He is personally, individually present in your life. And the psalmist says, not only does he hem us in, but he lays his hand upon us. Now, as I think about all that God knows, and if I reflect on all that I am and the things that God knows just about me, and the scripture says he lays his hand upon me, my imagination would in the beginning think if God's laying his hand upon me, it's like this. Because that's what we deserve. We deserve to be smashed out. And if you don't think you deserve that type of treatment from God, you're not being honest with yourself or with me. But that's not the way that God lays his hand upon us. He doesn't lay his hand upon us to smash us out. This is how God lays his hand upon us. The word hand, let me give you some more explanation. Remember, we got to teach so we can preach it. The word hand, it speaks not of the hand, like the entire hand. It speaks of the palm. And specifically, it talks about a palm that is cupped. Now, why would the Lord need to cup his hand before he puts it upon us? The reason is because God cups his hand to put it upon us, not so that he would smash us, but so that he could protect us. The psalmist says, the Lord hems me in. He is present behind me. He is present in front of me. But he also puts his hand upon me so that he could physically Through his presence, he could protect me. His hand, the hand of the one uncreated God is on top of me, covering my behind, covering my front, covering my sides so that nothing can come to me. It's amazing in and of itself to think that God would be graciously present, but it's even more amazing if you can to know that God has responded to all that he knows about us by still being present with us. And so how would we respond? How would we respond knowing that God knows all that he has and that God has still chosen to be graciously present? How can we respond? And it's simply this. We respond by knowing that God is God and I am not. That's a a conclusion that we have to arrive God's God, these are characteristics, these are attributes of his personality that make him God. And we're not God. I'm not God, you are not God, we are not God. One American philosopher said it this way, there's two things you need to know about God. Number one, there is a God. Number two, you're not him. There is a God 
And in Mississippian terms, you ain't him. I've been in Kentucky. I can say those Kentuckian words too. Y'all ain't him. I don't care how good you can cook barbecue. Which I wanted to say, where have you been all my life? Because it's so good. We respond by recognizing that God is God and we're not him. And there's great news in that. What is the great news in that? The great news is that there is a God, we're not him, but he still wants us. He still wants you. He still loves you. And he knows the truth. He knows you. He knows your name. He knows your habits. He knows your failures. He knows your successes. He knows your words. He knows how you go about your day. And he knows what you're like when you think nobody else is looking. And he still chooses you. The question is, will you choose him back? Will you receive from him what he has given to you freely? It's it's an invitation. God has not chosen to pull back from you. He's chosen to lean in towards you. And I want to ask you, are you willing to lean back towards him and to receive him into your life? As we move into our invitation, I'm going to invite Brother Mark and the worship team or whoever's leading us in worship to, to come forward. And as we move into our invitation, I want to tell you a quick story that relates to this point. I was in... Um, I was in central Mississippi doing youth ministry. It was my first church. And there was a student named Jonathan. I'm going to have to tell you about Jonathan later. His story is powerful. It's like one of those stories that you hear and you're just, like God just moves you through it. And Jonathan was, uh, he was a teenager and he invited me to go meet a guy that lived next door to his mom. They lived in a very impoverished part of Jackson, Mississippi. He invited me to go meet with, uh, go meet this guy. We're going to call him Dave. So Jonathan and I, we get in my vehicle one day and we're driving to go meet Dave. Um, and we see, this, uh, we see this little neighborhood, if you would call it that. It's really just, it, I'm trying to set it up for you. It's just hard to put into words. So there was this, there was this community of, of huts and shacks. And it was fenced in by really... Um, like rusted out tin roofing that they had collected and nailed together, very primitive. And behind the fencing, there were all of these huts and shacks. Some of them were like used, salvaged uh, RVs that these people had found and they had just sort of made into homes. Others were these piecemealed little huts that kind of looked like what you might see in the parking lot at one of these home improvement stores except not new and not assembled well. It was just kind of piecemealed together stuff. These folks were living in an environment. This was as close to homelessness as you could get without being homeless. Like they were on the verge. They, they just didn't have, just didn't have anything. And so Dave's house was this, one of these old salvaged RVs. I mean, it was, I mean, it was just a run down. It was a dump. And we walk into it and the walls and the ceiling have this yellow tinge, like stained by years of tobacco smoking, like the smoke had stained everything. You, you get the picture. And it has this awful, like, dry, stale whiskey smell. And Dave is laying back in this recliner. And Dave was, um, he was dying of liver failure from years of alcohol abuse. 
And he had recently been told that he just has, it's just a matter of time that he's going to die. And I walk in and I see Dave in this yellow tinged room and he's laying back. Um, He's yellow from his liver being failed. He's puffed up from just the medical consequences or from the the decline that he's facing. Introduce myself to him um, and start talking to him, asking him some questions. Who are you? You know, tell me a little bit about your story. And I tell him about God. I tell him how God loved him and, and I share the gospel with him. All the while, I might say that he's laying back and he's puffed up and he's yellow and he's got a bottle of whiskey open next to him. Just sitting there drinking all day till he dies. And I said, listen, Dave, like the Lord loves you and he's given his son, Jesus Christ. Even though you deserve to die, um, the death of a sinner, God loves you and he's given his only son. And his son died on the cross so you don't have to receive what you deserve, but you can receive what his son, Jesus, deserved, which is eternal life. I said, all you have to do is to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And listen to this. I share the gospel with him. Jonathan's there. Dave is laying in his recliner. And I I lean in and I give an invitation. I I ask him to respond. That's an important part. We have to ask people to do something with what we've told them. And I said, Dave, will you receive Jesus? Will you receive this free gift? And listen to what he says. No. Why not? I've just ruined my life. I'm too bad. I've drank myself to death. And I'm just too bad. I can't receive that. He said no. I said, well, I'll check back in with you. And Jonathan and I left. Within a couple of days, he was admitted to the hospital. And within hours after being admitted, he died. This has been over a decade. And let me tell you that every second of every minute, of every hour, of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year, since that moment, Dave has spent in hell. And do you want to know why that man went to hell? It's not because he was bad. It is because he rejected the one who was good. See, that's why we go to hell. God has decided that we're not going to go to hell because we're bad. We're going to go to hell because we rejected the one that he gave us to get out of hell, which is Jesus Christ. And I find it extraordinarily refreshing that God can know everything that he knows and he still chooses to give us Jesus. He still chooses to give you Jesus. And some of you are probably at the lowest point of your life. You feel indifferent, you feel broken, you feel like you are at the end of the rope. And I want to tell you that no matter what you did to get there or what has been done to you to bring you to this place, God has still chosen to be graciously present with you and to give you his one and only son, Jesus Christ, so you don't have to die in death, but you can live in life, in his life. And he's inviting you, will you receive that gift I want to tell you, don't do what Dave did. Don't say no, but will you say, yes, I will receive Jesus. Yes, I'll receive what I don't deserve. I will receive the love of God for my life by placing my faith in Jesus Christ, being forgiven of my sins and being surrendered to him as my Lord. Yes, I will receive Jesus Christ today.
And don't you wait. Don't you wait. To my knowledge, Dave never got another opportunity. And to my knowledge, some of you may never get another opportunity. And so let today be the day that you say, yes, I will receive Jesus. I'm going to invite you where you are to stand. We're going to move into a time of invitation. What that means is I'm going to lead us in a prayer in just a second. And when I close that prayer, if you need to make a decision for Jesus Christ, I want you to step out into the aisle. Don't wait. But after I close this prayer, I want you to step out into the aisle and I want you to come forward. I'm going to be here. We're going to have other ministers standing at the end of the aisle and we want to lead you in trusting Jesus as your Savior. We want to talk to you about it. Maybe you need to come forward to join the church. Maybe you want to come forward to be baptized or maybe you're just going through something and you just want someone to pray with you or hug you or to cry with you. We are here for you. In the first service, we had a young lady come forward to receive Jesus Christ. She's a mom of three. She looked over at her husband. She said, will you walk with me? And he said, yes, I will. He told me after the service that I was just following my wife to walk with her. He said, but halfway down the aisle, I felt like I got saved. And I said, well, have you ever been saved before? He said, not until I started walking down the aisle. And he was serious. He got saved walking down the aisle with his wife just about an hour ago. And they stood there and she was in tears broken and he didn't realize what was happening until after it happened. And I said, well, well, did Jesus save you? He said, yes, I'm saved. And we're going to talk to him. We're going to encourage him. We're going to counsel him. And we're going to baptize him. And I am pumped up about it. So I want to ask you, who here needs to make a decision for Jesus Christ? Today's the day. Now's the moment. I don't care if you're in the front, in the back, or in the balcony. We will wait for you because now is the time to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Father, we thank you for the day. We thank you for moving among us, hearing our praise, teaching us through your word, and preaching to our hearts, God, through the message. Lord, if there is a man, if there is a woman, if there is a teenager or a child that needs to be saved, God, I pray that you would help them be impressed and convicted that they are not good enough, but you are. And that your love for us isn't dependent upon what we bring to the table, but your love for us is dependent on who you are as God. And so if there's anyone that needs to make a decision for you today, God, I pray that you would lead them forward with courage, with faith, in obedience. Jesus hears our prayer and this is the invitation. Move among us now. In Jesus' name, amen.